daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day, another great week, in fact, in this greatest nation on God's green earth after Labor Day weekend. The campaigns are at full tilt with all kinds of contradictions and confrontations and craziness. All you hear about from uh, mainstream media in particular is how much better the Democrats are doing, how they suddenly have a, uh, a real chance at not only winning the Senate, where I think that yeah, that's true. I think it's uh, a toss-up who actually wins control of the Senate, and it depends on... A few very hot races, by the way, including the one in Washington state where there is all kinds of uh, indication that Tiffany Smiley, the Republican nominee, has a real chance, a real chance. I mean, the the uh, gap between her and Patty Murray, who's running for her seventh term, uh, that uh, gap is only about five points. Uh, there are some polls that show it's as low as four points. Some others show it's six points. But it's a close race. Okay, with all that going on, uh, what about the likelihood that everybody had conceded that the Republicans are going to take over the House of Representatives? Well, they actually probably are. Politico has never been accused of being a right-wing publication but they have a uh, breakdown which makes it look uh, very optimistic for Republicans in terms of winning control of the House of Representatives. We'll get to that. There's also the question of the special master, which which doesn't sound good. It does, it sounds like I don't know Fifty Shades of Grey, BDSM, something like that. Uh, is some special master is someone you hire, and what do you hire? him for, because I guess it would be special mistress otherwise. But uh, um, we'll be speaking with John Yu, uh, law professor, a strong defender of uh, President Trump, about what this means and about whether there's a likelihood that the the uh, special master declaration requirement is going to be appealed, it's going to be challenged, and what its future means in terms of Trump's entire problem with the uh, documents that he had taken to Mar-a-Lago. And yes, it's a problem. And meanwhile, there's breaking news about a participant in the January 6th riots who has now been disqualified from holding office in New Mexico by a New Mexico judge who sees that he had violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, disqualifying him from any public office because he had participated in an insurrection. Is that fair? Will that last? We'll also be speaking about that with Professor Yu coming up on the Michael Medved Show. And uh, and then there is a, a question about, okay, which party is most out of touch with America? And there's an interesting column that says they both are. And uh, partially because America is more complicated, more varied, um, and not quite as stereotypical on either side as people assume. Today is also, by the way, a time for uh, 
primary election in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts has the distinction of um, being the first state in the country, and this occurred about 10 years ago, to have a majority of state adults who have a four-year college degree or more. And is that associated with why it is so enormously liberal? Yeah, but it's been electing Republican governors, people like William Weld and like Charlie Baker, who probably could have gotten reelected this year, who are Republicans, are moderate Republicans. Uh, this year, there's a choice between a, a Trump-endorsed uh, Republican, a former member of the Massachusetts legislature, and a businessman named Dowdy, who is challenging uh, the Trump candidate deal. That is part of what is going on with the Massachusetts primary. The, um, <clears throat> they suggest that Maura Healey, the Democratic nominee, um, basically her only significant opponents have dropped out. She's run before, and uh, she is a very highly favored to win this particular election. Uh, there's uh, that going on, and uh, and then the the basic line about the special master, a federal judge's, this is from the New York Times, extraordinary decision yesterday to interject in the criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump's hoarding of sensitive government documents at his Florida residence showed unusual solicitude to him legal specialists said. This was an unprecedented intervention by a federal district judge into the middle of an ongoing federal criminal and national security investigation, said Stephen I. Vladek, who is a law professor at the University of Texas. The question here, and it's a fundamental question that we will get to, which is, okay, what, um, what does this mean uh, in terms of treating the president of the United States, the former president of the United States, dif differently than you would treat any other American citizen. And is it justified when you're talking about a potential criminal offense? Uh, there's a comment, and it's a, an interesting comment from uh, CNN by Ellie Honig, who is a former federal prosecutor, and uh, he tried to put the special master question into context. This is clip two. It's certainly a legal win for Trump for now, no question. He asked to have this judge insert a neutral third party independent arbiter to look through these to protect his rights and privileges. And now he has that. Of course, DOJ may appeal, but that's the status quo. People need to understand, though, ultimately, while it's a win for Trump, it's a procedural win. It does not prevent DOJ ultimately from charging or not charging or from gaining a conviction or not gaining a conviction. I think it's likely that when this process is done, the number of documents that actually will be filtered out will be fairly small. And if they are filtered out, John, they'll be privileged and DOJ shouldn't be able to use them in the first place. So this is a win for Donald Trump. It's really more of a speed bump than a brick wall for DOJ, however. Uh, OK, so <laughs> it means that we're going to be living with this back and forth on Trump and the documents and what happened to the empty manila envelopes that uh, were supposed to have secret documents in them and the documents no longer are there. So where are they exactly? All of that, uh, they 
I'm, I believe can continue to research. What they can't do is continue to pursue their criminal investigation based upon the decision of the judge. Uh, we will get to that, get to why it is that people at Politico, there's a long article about why uh, Kevin McCarthy is the new Speaker of the House, the Republicans winning a congressional majority in the House of Representatives. That's basically a, a sure thing, say Ali Mutnick, Sarah Ferris, and Elena Schneider, who are writing a long piece about current trends in a 63 days from the upcoming election. And is it a significant election? It certainly is. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, a brand new prime minister, uh, prime minister who I think will be impressive and I think has every chance of being successful, uh, Liz Truss, who just met with Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. This is the 15th prime minister that Queen Elizabeth has met with during her long long reign and some of those prime ministers that she met with and actually developed you could call it a friendship you can't really have a friendship with the queen of england but uh margaret thatcher was one of those prime ministers there for over 10 years we will talk about that and much more coming up on the medved show Michael Medved show. <laughs> there is this news item: uh, polling places increase security for the midterms. Sixty-three days till the midterm elections. Really, cameras and plexiglass are put in reception areas, and guards are recruited as a result of more threats on election staff. Okay, just think about this for a moment. When you talk about election staff, you're talking about your neighbors. And very often the people who are working at polling places, I've, I've noticed this in all, all the different places I've lived, really, uh, they tend to be older. That, that's, that's who is particularly, just like older people vote in greater numbers, higher percentage. Polling places around the nation are beefing up security ahead of the November midterm elections. Some state election officials need private security after numerous death threats. In Wisconsin, cameras and plexiglass have been installed in the reception area of a county election office in Madison. Madison, one of the most left-wing cities in the country. And again, who... Who is it who's who's menacing? Who in Madison, Wisconsin, is menacing the people who are going to be working at the polls? And who is really a greater threat here? Is the extreme left, which is very well represented in Madison, or is it the extreme right, which, frankly, there may be other parts of Wisconsin but not Madison, not the state capital, not the home of the University of Wisconsin. In Arizona's Maricopa County, fencing has gone up around the elections office. And there are uh, 
24-7 security and surveillance already set up, and it's still 63 days away from the election. The Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, has uh, had to hire private security out of her budget after a series of credible threats. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said potential violence is the biggest threat to the 2022 election. Now, again, depending on doesn't matter which side you're 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 rooting for. Can we can we hope that we don't go the way of Kenya uh, with they just had an election which still has not been accepted by the losing side and they had they had a, an election two elections ago in Kenya where over a thousand people died fighting in the streets. I, I mean, is is that really who we are? I mean, it's just it's just astonishing. And and there is this about the election. The Politico, which I mentioned, is is not a I think Politico tries to be fair most of the time, and they try to give both points of view. But this one is uh, an art article that is not going to make Democrats happy at all. Uh, the headline, GOP still has inside track to House majority despite Democratic gains. Democrats had a summer they never thought possible. It still may not be enough to keep the House. A month of special election upsets and improved standing and generic ballot, ballot polling have narrowed a House battlefield that seemed to be expanding for the GOP into some heavily blue districts. The shift has lifted some Democratic incumbents out of immediate peril and made some Republican members squirm after feeling safe earlier this year. The battle over abortion rights upended the political landscape, juicing up the Democratic base and giving them an opening with independence, data points that are now reflected in private and public polling. In a couple dozen of the most competitive swing states, uh, seats, Democratic operatives are more optimistic than ever that their members will run far ahead of President Joe Biden, whose approval rating hovered in the low 40s or sometimes lower throughout much of 2022. But his ratings have ticked up recently, as they report, which appears to be true. Not dramatically, but ticked up. Still, House Democrats face this sobering fact. Republicans may not need to flip any districts that Biden carried in 2020 to reclaim the majority. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her caucus are also staring down a coming wave of outside spending, which could swamp them in TV ads in the critical final weeks of the midterms. And historical precedence is not in their favor. What they're talking about there is the fact that uh, since the 1930s, every first midterm for any candidate, the one exception of that being George W. Bush after 9-11. Even Bill Clinton in his first term, he lost uh, his midterm election in his first term. He lost 55 seats for the Democrats. In all, the Republicans need to net only five seats to win the gavel. And while Democrats may be poised to mitigate some losses, <clears throat> Republicans say there's still little chance the party's summertime surge can overcome the stacked map. 
I think we probably had a little bit of irrational exuberance during the course of the summer. No question that the president's numbers, while bad, got better. That's what Tom Cole said, who's a, um, a fine member of Congress who I admire a great deal. He's a Republican from Oklahoma. He's a former House GOP campaign chief who pegged his party's gains as likely to be 20 to 25 seats. I think that's probably about right. It could be a little bit less than that. It certainly doesn't have to be more than that. All they need is five seats and then to hold their own. And there are very few Republican incumbents who seem to be threatened. He says um, Tom Cole, 20, 25 seats rather than the 60 seats that his party's leader once predicted at the height of the Democrats' struggles. I always ask myself every morning, would I rather be us than them, says Congressman Cole. And I'd rather be us, Cole said. And I think if they're honest, they would say the same thing. Despite the undeniable shift in momentum toward Democrats, some Democrats say privately that a good night for their party would be limiting the GOP to single-digit gains. The drive to hold the majority has been hampered by a historic number of Democratic retirements. I believe they had more than 20 retirements, which really matters. Setbacks in redistricting and the fact that several Democratic incumbents are running in Trump-leaning territory. While redistricting didn't tilt as heavily to Republicans as some expected, the GOP emerged from the process with a healthy cushion of new GOP districts. In Florida alone, they have four new districts because growing in population, but uh, that are heavily Republican, should give them four extra seats. We'll talk about the special master, the impact on the election and the future of the legal fight against President Trump regarding the documents with Professor John Yu. Coming up on The Medved Show. show always a pleasure and an honor to welcome back to the show professor john Yu of the university of california at berkeley law school he is also a non-resident senior fellow at the american enterprise institute in washington and a visiting fellow at the hoover institution at stanford university one of the nation's preeminent legal scholars uh, professor Yu, uh this is a terrific subject to talk with you about and maybe you can help to clarify for a lot of people out there who may be a little bit confused about the recent decree by Judge Cannon that uh, President Trump and his legal team will get the special master that they were requesting uh, to in order to go over documents and to determine whether any of them are indeed privileged uh, that uh, cannot be used by the the Justice Department in pursuit of the president and pursuit of a potential indictment. Uh, what um, have, have you ever heard of anything 
like this with a special master on this kind of prosecution? It's highly unusual, Michael. It's great to be back with you. Usually you see special masters in very complicated financial cases or sprawling litigation with uh, lots of uh, incidents like a mass accident in lots of different jurisdictions uh, or something like financial, complicated financial accounting. But the standard for appointing a special master is that there are exceptional circumstances present. And I don't blame the judge for granting one here because it is exceptional. This is the first time we've had uh, the home of a former president subject to a search warrant on a claim that at that house there was probable cause that there was evidence that a federal crime had been committed. There's really complicated attorney-client privilege issues. There's also, as the judge noted in her opinion yesterday, there's very complicated, first-of-their-kind executive privilege questions. So it is unusual to see a special master appointed in this case, but I don't blame the judge. The judge asked when she was hearing the arguments, uh, what's the harm? of appointing one. This is special master is something like an assistant to the judge. Assistant to the court is going to help uh, figure out what happened, give a preliminary idea of where the court might rule, uh, but it's not probably going to change the outcome. It it would uh, add time to the process, wouldn't it? Making it even more likely that this will go on well past the November election. Yes, in fact, I think the main win for President Trump's side is that this delays things a while longer. It gives him, actually it gives the Justice Department, too, breathing space, because, as you say, um, it's almost as if another court was inserted here beneath the trial judge. So it's as if the process is going to take twice as long, because there's apparently 11,000 documents that the FBI took out of Mar-a-Lago, so you're going to need a special master to look at all every single page of them and review them to see whether there are any that should be privileged. In the meantime, the district judge has ordered the Justice Department not to look at or use any of those documents in any investigation it's undertaking. So that's going to put yes, weeks and weeks, if not months, of a delay into it. And as you're, you're right, Michael, the Justice Department has a policy not to make any kind of public indictments or comments within two months of an election. And so we've basically hit that two-month period this week. So I think the Trump motion has basically put this into that quiet period and guarantees that the Justice Department is not really going to do anything until after November now. Uh, When you say they're not going to do anything, what about appealing uh, this decision? I I think that the the argument that I have heard that seems to me most weighty is that uh, for any other citizen who was not a former president of the United States, this would be almost inconceivable. And what you're saying is, if I hear you correctly, is, well, a president of the United States is different, even a former president of the United States. Yeah, that's fair to say, Michael. Most cases like this, unless it was actually a lawyer who has all the documents are privileged in some way or another, uh, you would not see a special master in a case like this. It's not because the former president is special. It's because the former president raises unique issues. Uh, For example, 
how many of these documents that were there uh, contained advice that President Trump received while he was president from his closest advisors. So those are usually protected by executive privilege from revelation in court because we want future presidents. It's not for Trump so much as it's for future presidents to be able to receive candid advice and to be able to kick around all the possible options, even ones that are politically unpopular. Uh, so that, that's a unique issue that just doesn't arise for normal citizens like you and me. And so you need to handle it with these kind of documents with special care, even if in the end you still hand over the documents to the Justice Department. You want to make sure that all these factors were considered when the documents were taken and before they're handed over, because we don't want to create bad incentives that harm the presidency for the future. No, of course not. Well as speaking of the presidency in the past, uh, you were uh, an aide who handled, mm-hmm. I, I would assume, some highly classified, uh, sensitive material for the Bush administration, the George W. Bush That's administration. That's true. That's true. Yeah, in fact, I, I wish I'd handled less. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, would you would you have advised President Bush, or have, would you have been concerned? if President Bush was less careful than he should have been uh, with some of the papers and storing some of the papers and where they would go? Because this has to have been something that was sensitive to you while you were working for the White House. First, uh, I was shocked, actually, to see the amount and the level of classified documents that President Trump had at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Um, you look at that photo that the FBI attached last week to its motion, and those are the highest secrets. You know, the, it goes in, you know, classified secret to all the way to top secret. And then above top secret, there's something called SCI, which stands for Secure Compartmentalized Information. And that one, I, I mean, I, I can't, it's inconceivable those documents would not be in a secure government facility. So there's two things, though. Two people are at fault. Biden and Trump are both at fault. We never would have seen this in Bush, with Bush or previous presidents for this reason. Uh, Trump used to have a secure facility at Mar-a-Lago because when he was there he, as president, he would still need to have access to these files. So when President Trump, Biden came into office, he removed Trump's security clearance, and he eliminated that secure facility. Uh, That's not usually what happens. Usually past presidents continue to have access to these documents. They might use them to write their memoirs, for example. So Biden's at fault here, but also Trump's at fault because once Biden did that, Trump should have returned all these documents. But instead, Trump or his staff, it's not clear who made the decision, or maybe they didn't even know, uh, but they kept them. But it's inconceivable to me in the Bush administration we would ever have allowed documents like this. Uh, legally to be held outside a secure government facility. If another if another country got a hold of them, they would be able to tell who our agents are abroad, what kind of technologies we're using to intercept their secrets. These are the crown jewels of the intelligence community at stake here. Has any other president had, uh, after leaving office, uh, lost his security clearance? You know, Michael, the answer is whenever, uh, has this ever happened before? When it involves Trump, the usual answer is Nixon. (laughs) So the Nixon did it. There was a Nixon issue we could talk about, about taking presidential papers away, too. Yeah, that was a, a little bit of an early departure from the presidency. Speaking to John Yu of the University of California at Berkeley, if you can hang on, uh, 
couple of other things to clarify coming up, including an implementation of part of the 14th Amendment that people forget about. Coming up. Michael Medved show joined for a few minutes more by uh, John Yu, professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley Law School, um, also a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise uh, American Enterprise Institute, and one of uh, our nation's preeminent and most fair and open-minded legal scholars. Uh, John, I, I wanted to, to ask you about this case in Otero County involving the organizer and leader of Cowboys for Trump, uh, Cooey Griffin. Uh, he is an Otero County commissioner, and a New Mexico judge just today ordered him to be removed from office effective immediately due to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment which marks the first time since 1869 that a court has disqualified a public official under this provision of the 14th Amendment because he participated in an insurrection. He was there and was very active in the January 6th uh, uh, riots. So, first of all, had you taken a look at this already? Are you you aware of... uh, him losing his position as a county commissioner because of violation of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? I hadn't heard of it, Michael, and I'm actually surprised that a state judge would take this step because, uh, if memory serves, this really is up to Congress and really is up to the federal government. I don't think that the 14th Amendment authorizes state governments uh, and state officials to start disqualifying people from office. Uh, as, as you know, the history of it is that it was used right after the Civil War, and uh, was uh, it was used to deny uh, former Confederate officers and uh, both military and civil from holding office in the United States again when the Southern states came back and started sending Confederate Confederates back as their senators and members of the House uh, to Congress. I, I, I confess I had not heard of a state, and so this I think it would be an interesting case. This person could make a defense that, you know, this is really a decision that's up to federal authorities and really ultimately Congress to decide, not just any state judge. Well, apparently, what this judge is citing is uh, this is known as the disqualification clause, as you know, of course, yes. and it bars any person from holding either federal or state office who took, quote, an oath to support the Constitution of the United States as an officer of any state and then it then engaged in insurrection or rebellion or gave aid and comfort to insurrectionists. I, uh, I remember they tried to do the same thing to uh, disqualify Madison Cawthorn um, from mm-hmm. his service in Congress and, of course, the voters in his district um, voted him out of office uh, in the primary election in North Carolina. But uh, this, um, 
uh, Griffin as an Otero County commissioner since January 2019 took an oath to, quote, support and uphold the Constitution and laws of the state of New Mexico and the Constitution of the United States. So I guess that's the basis for, but this this almost surely will be appealed, right? Oh, yes, because um, the, it's not whether the person took the oath that's going to be the key issue. It's whether um, that person could legitimately be found to have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And, you know, that question is still out there about January 6th. Uh, do people, uh, even people who attacked the Capitol, were they guilty of insurrection or rebellion? And did he get a trial about this fact? If you're going to disqualify someone from office, I would think, you know, a judge couldn't just sort of slap that on at the end of your sentence, uh, but that you would want to have a hearing, at the very least, where the government has to prove that you did engage in insurrection and rebellion. The last thing is the 14th Amendment has an enforcement clause. It says that Congress has the power to enforce the 14th Amendment. And so you would expect to see a, a federal law that describes how disqualification is to take uh, place. The other time we had a debate about this was, if you remember, was when President Trump was impeached for the second time. And there were questions, and you could disqualify someone from office. Uh, upon a finding, a conviction of impeachment. And that was really the last time I recall we had a major discussion about what this meant. I, I can't think that a state judge could find, for example, that President Trump had committed insurrection or rebellion and therefore is disqualified. It would have to be a federal court. Yeah. And uh, again, what's interesting to me is knowing a little bit about uh, Coey Griffin and Cowboys for Trump, which has a pretty strong and very militant organization and um, very extreme in in their position on America's corruption and bordering on some of the QAnon beliefs. In any event, he's going to welcome a trial. I mean, this this is, it seems to me, uh, that when this story explodes, and again, the decision by the New Mexico judge just happened today, uh, I would imagine that it would give a, a great deal of publicity to um, uh, to a, a group that um, um, many people will find very extreme. I see. That's a really good point because what is the real benefit for adding this on? You're already going to be removing people from office. You may be convicting in the end a lot of the people who participated in January 6th, for example, uh, and they might be guilty of federal crimes already, uh, adding on this insurrection and rebellion uh, creates a whole uh, opportunity for a trial about issues that are in some ways political as much as they are legal and providing a forum for people who uh, personally I don't think deserve a forum really in a criminal case to argue these kinds of claims. I think the you know, the law and the facts are going to be pretty clear by then. Uh, I would I would think prosecutors should just drop this kind of disqual- you know, move to disqualify people as well, in addition to just convicting them of regular federal crimes. And what about speaking of being convicted of regular federal crimes? As you're aware, President Trump uh, said recently on the radio that he would seriously consider if he is uh, nominated and and then reelected that he would consider full pardons and a federal apology 
to people who have been convicted of crimes, and there are already almost 300 of them who have either pled guilty or been convicted for January 6th. Uh, do you think that's uh, a healthy situation to promise pardons in advance? No. I, I wish President Trump wouldn't think of using the pardon power for that reason. The pardon power is unrevealable. It is one of the great executive powers, and no one can, no court or Congress can overturn a pardon. But I think if he should um, let the judicial process and the criminal justice system proceed, and let's see what people are convicted of. If people are guilty of not just trespassing on capital grounds, but actually attacking and trying to stop the legitimate count of the electoral votes, then I don't think they're deserving of a pardon. Now, I think people are upset about, and maybe President Trump's responding to, the fact that a lot of the people who've been arrested for going to the Capitol have been held in solitary confinement or um, have had uh, trouble um, getting in touch with lawyers and so on. But that's not what pardons are for. Pardons are for the removal of the actual convictions and the sentences that you're convicted of. And I, I don't think that it's an appropriate use of the pardon power to promise to right, undo the findings of the criminal justice system for the people who attacked the Capitol. Uh, John Yu, uh, we, you can uh, read the latest commentary by John Yu, which we will link to at our website at michaelmedved.com. He uh, is a um, professor, distinguished professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley Law School, plus being a fellow for the Hoover Institution at Stanford and for the American Enterprise Institute. And in very complicated uh, legal questions, a a reliable and trustworthy and deeply informed guide. Uh, speaking of uh, deeply informed uh, guides, there is more coming up about uh, how, how do you see the biggest divide among American voters demographically? Once upon a time, people used to say, well, it was race. Uh, it isn't anymore. It's not income. It's not even religious faith. What is it? And why is this uh, an item of some concern for both political parties? We will get to that question and much more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. 